Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 170 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Juneteenth, the holiday that originates here in Texas, marking the day in 1865 that Union General Gordon Granger and his regiment of 2,000 troops landed at Galveston and announced not only that the war was over, but that there had indeed been an Emancipation Proclamation two years earlier, and though it had had no real effect in Texas previously, it sure did now, and would at last be truly enforced. So happy Juneteenth to everybody. That's been a state holiday here in Texas since 1980, thanks to the efforts of Representative Al Edwards, who I believe may have passed away recently, and who was also instrumental in spreading Juneteenth to other states. This year is obviously a special moment for this, uh, this important holiday. So happy Juneteenth. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I, I saw, I think, yesterday in the news that Senator Cornyn said he would back, uh, a, I think a bill was introduced by uh, Representative Jackson Lee. Um, so lots of Texas connections to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. Um, I got to say, I think, I think it's a close call for me, Bobby, whether I'd make Juneteenth a federal holiday before I made Election Day a federal holiday. But why not both? <laughs> That's true. Move Election Day to, uh, to June 19th? No, I'm yeah. saying make them both federal holidays. Oh, two holidays. Yes, it, it's... <laughs> It's, it's it's bogo. Buy one, get one. I mean, um, why not? You know, uh, what, so what is often misunderstood, like some of the some of the coverage today is like, oh, Juneteenth, it's celebrating the Emancipation Proclamation. I think that really misses a critical, important point that makes Juneteenth so much better as a holiday and as an occasion for memorialization uh, and for understanding how the the past relates to the present than celebrating the date of the Emancipation Proclamation, which of course, as said earlier, was, was you know, post-Gettysburg, 1863. Um, wait, 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 pre-Gettysburg. Pre I'm sorry, did I say post? January 1st. Yeah, sorry, my bad. Um, so it, it comes, uh, it, it, here's what I'm trying to get at. The, the whole idea of why there would need to be a Juneteenth is that the proclamation, the, the magic words had been said and, they, and it didn't change the facts on the ground here in Texas because the union wasn't in a position to enforce it for, for two years. It's only when Granger arrived that it began to, to happen. Um, and by celebrating that, you kind of draw some attention to the difference between saying the right things and doing the right things. And I think that's very relevant for the current times. I know that's right. I mean, I, the, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, there have been years, although it's not every year, that I teach it in con law because it raises, you know, the interplay between it and the 13th Amendment is this fascinating constitutional story, some of which is told in the Steven Spielberg movie Lincoln. Um, and, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, such as it was, um, the day it was issued freed exactly no slaves um, because it, it basically purported to emancipate slaves in, all, in a whole bunch of territories and states that were not then under union control. Exactly. And, and so it's actually constitutional it's, foundations for it. Right. And so, and Lincoln justifies it, at least at the time, entirely as an exercise of his war powers, um, right? Which, of course, is part of why he believes when the war is over, the Constitution has to be amended to prohibit slavery because, the, you know, as, as it's fictionalized in the Spielberg movie, um, he had genuine concerns that it wouldn't be upheld as anything other than a war measure. And so you had to write it in the constitution, you know, as hardwired. But your point I think is key, which is, you know, the words were the aspiration, but it was the advance of the union army that did the work. That's right, that's exactly right. Well, um, very which, and I should say, I'm, I'm in the middle of rereading Ron Chernow's Grant biography. So we're- uh, Oh, you mean, you mean uh, this, this right here? Yes, so the yeah. union army is advancing. 
So, you know, I got to say, I may have said this on the show before. I, I, I love Charnell's Hamilton way before there was a musical. I did not love yeah. uh, his grant. I, I thought know. it was way too a hagiographic. Hey, 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 it know. was way too celebratory. And I really prefer UT's own Bill Brands yep. with his bio of Grant, which I found more even-handed. Um, Although we're, we're going to come back. I, I, there's a Hamilton reference coming later. Oh, nice. Well, glad to hear that too. Um, or a couple of Hamilton references coming. When we, when we, got, to, when we got to your friend and mine, John Bolton. <laughs> well, well let's, let's get right to him. So we've got a good, uh, in addition to talking about the war powers and, and Juneteenth and the connection between all that and the 13th Amendment, um, on the sort of uh, more traditional national security law topics, we've got the Bolton prior restraint lawsuit, which is being argued that the temporary restraining order motion from the U.S. government. See, I mean, it's funny. It's like, oh, it's like it's so Pentagon papersy right as we speak. They're in front of Judge Lambert seeking a TRO to prevent publication of John Bolton's books. Are you kidding me? And of course, you have to pause and think, all right, so part of this is theater. Part of it is, well, what else are they going to do? They're, they're going to try, even though there's, in my opinion, no way they can or should win. And it's, it's a little nuts. But we're going we're gonna to have that. Then we'll, we'll roll from that to a you know, vaguely related, or at least thematically related, recent development from the National Security Division. So we'll pick up what's happening there, um, the case of a DIA analyst who just got sentenced for leaking classified information. Um, we'll turn to SCOTUS, and we've got the DACA decision. Whoa, that, there, were, there was this minute or two on Twitter yesterday where every tweet was, whoa, without explanation, just people saying like, wow, didn't, see, didn't quite see that twist coming. Uh, maybe you did. I, um, I, I've said all along, I thought it was, I mean, I was in the room for the oral argument. And, and I, thought, I, I, I thought that what happened, yesterday, what happened yesterday is exactly what I would have put money on if I put money on anything. An institutional ruling from the chief? Yep. Uh, so we'll, we'll unpack that one. And uh, then we'll talk about this fascinating Eric Schmidt story from the New York Times yesterday, going back to our uh, topic of the protest and the, the role of the military, in particular National Guard units that were not federalized. Um, there's a fascinating development about... Uh, two, two elements. One, was it possible that without the governor of Pennsylvania's knowledge or directive, especially his directive, the Pennsylvania National Guard uh, personnel nonetheless deployed to D.C.? And vaguely related to that, what about the role of surveillance aircraft or National Guard aircraft in the D.C. area? Um, we'll, we'll unpack that story a bit. We'll take note of the fact that two nuclear powers were engaged in international armed conflict this past week, and hardly anybody was in Wait, the United what? States was really talking about it. Huh? China, China and India had themselves some full-on, full-on armed attack activity. We had IAC activity. We had uh, kinetic operations. We had people being killed. We had detainees. It turns out, at least. But, that's, had, but Bobby, that's okay. Trump is a hawk on China, so we'll be fine. Yeah, is he? Yeah, go see topic one, Bolton book. Um, and then uh, related to that, speaking especially of one of the more uh, remarkable uh, stories from all the, the wave of uh, pre-release coverage of the book, we'll talk about the Uyghurs, Trump, and both the Bolton revelation, but also the fact that on Wednesday, about the same time that the stories about what he apparently said to President Xi about the Uyghurs, he was also signing into law the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2020. So we'll explain how that is. What a coincidence. A yeah, well, it's a, it's a, yeah, there's some tension, some, some cognitive dissonance going on there, but also some interesting IEP activity. And then we'll come to our frivolity, and uh, the frivolity will be about the return of 
the NBA, the return maybe of MLB, and we'll talk about these plans. And, and why and, I am very skeptical. You don't think it's happening? I don't know. English Premier League's back. Why can't Major League Baseball be back? In the because NBA? the Europeans have actually figured out how to flatten the curve, and we haven't. We certainly, we, oh, we figured it out. We're just not doing it. Well, okay, <laughs> or at least fair. we stopped doing did it. You see, did you see the AMC movie theater um, uh, controversy of the last 24 hours? I saw only that yesterday I got an email from them saying like, we're opening back up. And then I saw some Twitter action basically saying they're having to walk back. Were they going to open up without a mask policy? They're going to open up without a mask policy. Bobby, to avoid taking sides in this political controversy. Are you serious? That's literally what the... What, the, what, the, what, a, re, what a cowardly reification of the idea that there is a controversy, which is fundamentally problematic. And that really bothers me. And I'm glad to hear they're already taking heat for it. I hope I they've mean, walked it back. They've already walked it back. I mean, they've, they've... If there's any place on earth you should be able to sit with your mask on without feeling... If you, if you actually prize aesthetics so much that you're unwilling to have a mask on where other people can see you, good news. They turned the lights off in the theater. What an idea. All right. Um, I, would have thought, I would have thought the objection is that you can't stop me from eating my popcorn, but, you know. <laughs> it's really something else. All right. So speaking of stupid objections to things, um, should we talk about John Bolton? Let's do. They're in court right now. Uh, I think we both agree that there's no way on earth there's going to be a TRO here. Can, can, we go, can, we, can we go back even before this, though? Like, before yeah. we get to the TRO. Like, you talking about the book itself and the excerpt? The whole thing is so stupid. Like, this whole manufactured controversy and scandal, it's all Bolton's fault. Like, I have... I have I, I am the last person who's ever going to defend anything this administration does, especially in this space. But... Well, his hands are so dirty here. Like, he could have testified in the House. He could have said all of this publicly, right? And instead, you know, he's like, I'll let the book do the talking. Well, the right, book... He wants, he wants to sell the books and he wants to preserve the position of, for whatever future influence he's planning to have, he didn't, uh, this is my read of it, he didn't want to be seen to voluntarily participate in the impeachment so he subordinates the national interest, which he now wants to get full credit. Right, now, right. now, now he's given these national television interviews, which like, you know, ABC is promoting this, his interview with Martha Raddatz as, you know, the, the inside story the Trump administration is suing to prevent you from hearing. And it's like... I know we share this view that it is entirely possible and indeed apparently quite appropriate to think that he has acted intolerably mm -hmm. and that the book is not surprisingly, but nonetheless... Uh, um, in detail, condemnatory of Trump, and rightly so. And, and so a lot of people seem unable to, to sort of, they feel like you got to pick a side. No, you have to pick no. A side. He's terrible. The book is, the, I mean, I don't know if you saw Jen Shalai. I, don't, I can't pronounce her last name. Is it Shalai? Shalai? Uh, Jen Shalai reviewed the book in the New York Times, um, and it was about as savage a book review, like, as I've seen in a long time. I mean, on, on its own merits, because the book is terrible, or, yes. or because... No, no. I'm curious. I haven't seen the review. What? There's, there's the whole little, meta story of, wait, why the hell didn't he testify? A about little this? bit of it's the meta story, Bobby, but most of it is the book. Like, okay. that, like, she go, like, she goes after the book as like this rambling, you know, not well stitched together, self-congratulatory, um, meandering, like, you know, it's, she, is, she is not, um, how do I say, um, a fan. So, so, but all this is to say, so I actually think three things are true at once, right? One, Bolton sucks. 
Two, the book is quite rightly condemnatory, right, of Trump, insofar as it, you know, tells these stories of all this that happened inside the administration, right? But three, the controversy the book, the legal controversy the book has provoked, right, is one in which both sides are wrong. <laughs> right? how, how is Bolton wrong on the legal side? He's going to lose his money. Oh, yeah. No, right. No, he's totally going to lose his no, money. So, 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 so to back up, right, there are two different elements to the legal controversy. The first is whether the government's entitled to a constructive trust, whereby Bolton's going to have, Bolton and Simon and Schuster are going to have to disgorge all the profits because the book went, went out without clear and pre-publication review. Right. And that's a contract dispute that's not, it's not in a direct sense, like the other issue is about the First Amendment and, and silencing him. It's just there's a contract and you agree in advance in the contract that if you don't fully comply with the process, the penalty is the money and the proceeds all go over to. And, and, you know, I mean, you know, well, the series of blog posts that Jack Goldsmith and Ona Hathaway have written about all of the problems with the pre-publication review process. Yep. Um, I agree that the process is flawed, but Bolton signed up for it. Right. And okay. so, you Which, know, by the way, it's, it's, I, I agree not only with what you're saying about the, the descriptive case for he's going to lose on the money and therefore Simon and Schuster is going to lose on the money. This is so relatively clear to me that it's amazing to me that he thought it was worth his while to, to flout the congressional procedures that he should have complied with. Indeed, it's inexcusable that he did not. If, if what his motivation was like, no, no, I want to cash in later on the book. And indeed, it makes me think like, no, it's really not so much that he was sure he was going to cash in, though I'm sure he held out hope. I think it's he was trying to like thread this needle where he could be seen in history's eyes eventually as having spoken out against the, the would-be dictator, et cetera, blown the whistle, without actually really doing it in a spotlight that, was, that he felt would become, that would tar him with, oh, you joined the Democrats in taking down the president in the midst of his the time. But the timeline complicates that, right? Because the testimony, all, all the testimony would have been late last fall in January. And apparently the real sort of, he was told in April, right, that the book had initially cleared pre-publication review. Oh, so he thought he was getting money. He thought he was going to get the money. So anyway, so, but so I want to read, um, my, favorite, my favorite tweet is from Lin-Manuel Miranda. Because, um, you know, the book is titled The Room Where It Happened, right? And, oh, right. <laughs> okay, what did, what, what did uh, so Maestro Lin, say? So Lin tweeted this yesterday. Let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no <laughs> control who lives, who dies, who, bracket, borrows your song title to write a cash-in book and they could have testified before Congress, close bracket, <laughs> tells your story. Nice. Doesn't, doesn't have the same uh, pacing. The beats are a little off, but, uh, but so, plot-wise, so, I like so it. One of my friends said, I mean, one of my friends uh, in response to this tweet said, I think the right thing, which is Bur, um, uh, Bolton, right, fancies himself Hamilton when in Pretty fact cool. he's Burr. <laughs> so anyway, all to say, so that Bolton, so, so the, you know, I, I don't doubt for a moment that the pre-publication review process was heavily politicized. That, oh, yeah. that some of the information in the book that they're saying is classified, right, may not actually be properly classified, right? Oh, yeah. But that's not, a, Bolton's not going to win that fight. I mean, you know, the, the, I don't, you know, Bolton says, I don't think this is classified. The government says, here's why we think it is. Like, all the government needs is one piece of information in the whole book where they have a legitimate claim of classification. And if he wants it, he's, yeah, the, the, it's, it's a predetermined contractual penalty that he's facing here. And it's really yeah. easy to see that he's going to be a foul of that. So he loses on, the, on that, but that's also, if that's all it was, and it's just another example of how 
difficult it is in a classified information protective system to, to have the truth come out. Um, the thing that gets us all exercised from a legal perspective is the attempt to suppress the right. expression full stop so that the information doesn't go out even if he's willing to lose the money on it. And, and so, that's, so that's where prior right. restraint law kicks in. So, and that's the part where the Trump administration is just off its rocker, right? So there, there are two different problems, Bobby, though. I, I mean, I, I actually think it's even worse than that. It would be bad enough if the Trump administration had sought a proper prior restraint at a time when the prior restraint could have been remotely effective. Um, <laughs> well, this is just, this is their incompetence, right? They, they didn't act quickly. They waited until the verge of publication, like, it's almost like the, the wave of media publicity to sell the book finally got their attention to realize like, oh my gosh, I, apparently they're going to sell this book. They've known, they've known all along that this is coming. And if they meant to try to stop this in this way, certainly they would be vastly better off having acted six months or eight months ago or whatever it was, trying to act now when the books have all been distributed, as the publisher has made clear, first of all, it's not just that Bolton doesn't have any ability to recall the books. Simon Schuster doesn't have the ability to recall the books. At least it doesn't appear obvious that it does. No. They're all over the world now and being read and already read by loads of people. It's been, I mean, not, so I know people who have the book, right? But not only that, so the New York Times, um, when was this? This was Wednesday night, right? So Wednesday night, right when the Justice Department filed the application for a TRO and a preliminary injunction. So these were consecutive headlines on the New York Times website. Breaking news, the Justice Department escalated the legal fight to halt publication of John Bolton's memoir. Next headline, book review, colon, yeah. <laughs> The Room Where It Happened by John right. Bolton. Yeah, and there's like, you know, Peter Baker's got excerpts in the Times. I mean, sorry. Uh, Bolton, Bolton himself published part of it in the Wall Street Journal. I mean. No, it's nuts. So clearly there's, uh, there's no, even if the prior restraint was otherwise legally available. Which it isn't. I don't think it was. Even if it was, it's too late because of the incompetence of the administration lawyers in waiting to this point to act. They, the, the horse is out of the barn. And as I saw from Marty and others who were paying attention to the argument as it unfolds, wasn't that the first thing yeah. out of yeah. uh, Lamberth. Judge Lamberth's, by the way, Judge Lamberth, UT grad. Welcome. Lamberth. Not, not, wait, um, not only UT grad, just hired a member of the UT class of 2020 as one of his next, or 2021 as one of his next law clerks. Not yet. And, and that is a fine tradition he's carrying on. No, he like did. Him. What? He did. He hired, he hired, he hired my student, Taylor Wilson. I, I, that's awesome. And he, and he has been really awesome hiring our people. Um, so thank you, Judge Lambert. But also thank you for leading the oral argument with aren't the horses out of the barn? Or, and, and as Marty pointed out, he didn't say it's not that the tooth, toothpaste isn't, is out of the tube. It's the horses out of the barn. I mean, it's Judge Lambert. I, I would expect nothing less. Exactly. Um, so, all right. So is there anything I'll, interesting I'll say, to say here? So I, I have two interesting things. To say. Well, no, I have two things to say. Yeah, I'll, I'll be the judge of that. I was going to say. Um, so interesting thing number one um, is to wonder if had the government proceeded on time, there'd be anything to their prior restraint claim, right? Because Lambert can rule against them without even getting to the merits just on unreasonable delay, right? He can- You like, sum up the doctrinal test here. That it's, what is it? It's immediate exigent harm or like highly- Right, near versus Minnesota. So there's, yeah. there's only one prominent example, right? In all of American history of a successful prior restraint of publication. And it's, <laughs> right, it's the- how, uh, what, how to build an H-bomb? Right, the progressive was gonna publish at least some amount of technical detail about the construction of a bomb. Now, if that's, as many people have observed, if that's the example, the bar has been set really, really, really high. 
the bet, you know, the hypothetical examples that make a lot of sense and are often used when we teach this stuff is look, if somebody's about to publish the tactical details of an operation that's about to take place tomorrow, uh, and it's obvious there will be an immediate and clear and present danger to, to the lives of the troops. That sort of right. thing. The, the sailing of ships, right? Isn't that near yeah. versus Minnesota? Yeah. So, so yes, their theory, in theory, there can be, they're not per se unconstitutional, but the bar is really high and there is just no plausible argument in anything DOJ has said so far that even if it hadn't already been waived by the fact that it's already out there, which it has, um, that the sorts of stuff that are in that's in here involves that sort of immediacy and harm just it isn't there so there's not going to be a prior restraint okay um, so there I, will I, later be a constructive trust problem i agree with all of that um and then the second and, and just really quickly and you know and for folks who say what about the pentagon papers case right this is the exact distinction the supreme court drew in the pentagon papers case where the court said no prior restraint but where like what three of the justices and their concurrences went out of their way to talk about how you could have punished the New York Times and the Washington Post after the fact, right, for publishing the Pentagon Papers. Um, that's right, for better or for worse, that's the distinction that our law draws, is that almost always, right, we'll let you publish and then punish you. Um, yeah. And then the only, the only thing I wanted to say was, I hope that this, and I wrote a piece for um, NBC uh, uh, News the other day about this, I hope this whole sordid affair um, once again reinforces why it is so problematic that Congress has completely abandoned the field when it comes to national security classification, um, right? That, you know, after a, a very robust 10 or 15 year period where Congress and the executive branch are both, you know, occupying different parts of the space, Congress since the mid 1950s, Bobby, has basically left all of this to the executive branch with no penalties, right? I mean, the, the penalty the government pays for wrongfully classifying something is that it gets declassified. That's not a penalty. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, I've thought this for years, this is not new, but I think that like, once again, we see the costs of a regime when Donald Trump can say, if I said it, it's classified. <laughs> and, you know, we can point to the provisions of executive order 13.526 that says otherwise, but, Who's going to stop them? So one thing I just want to add, and then we should move on, but I agree with all that. Um, on this point about how in our system, there's no prior restraint you can publish, but you're going to bear the cost on the back end for what you published. It, I know you, you think this as well. I just want to clarify for listeners, of course, the Constitution still protects on the back end as well, and there's really serious limits on when there can be a punishment. Now, in this particular case, the... John Bolton's agreed by contract in advance to certain consequences if he breaches confidences of a certain kind. Um, and, and that's gonna apply by extension to, to Simon and Schuster collaborating with him for the publication of this book. But we're, we're not suggesting, and I don't think anyone, even the Trump administration isn't claiming that there could be something else that could be done to Simon and Schuster for publishing, such as what we've seen going on the past week in the Philippines with the horrific, uh, uh, travesty against speech and journalism of a criminal libel uh, prosecution against a journalist uh, for saying things alleged to be libelous. I mean, it's bad enough to, to have people sued for libel. Uh, that's, a, that's a murky and complex issue, but to actually treat it as a crime is, is quite a line. It's important to recognize that uh, in this case, you don't have anything like that going on now, but it, but it leads to our next topic. What about the laws that allow for prosecution for those who leak classified information 
and perhaps those who could be described as having received it and or conspired with such a person. So I, I don't think there's any, I mean, I, I, I think the much more interesting question here is, do you think Bolton could be prosecuted for violating the Espionage Act? Right. I mean, the, the administration's claiming wrong, but let's, let's just say it's true that he's, he's effectively distributing uh, classified information, perhaps even national defense information. Is it clear that that's wrong? I don't know. That's what I'm asking too. So like if it is famously, the Espionage Act is, is sweepingly broad in its written form, not necessarily, not usually in how it's applied, but if they said, all right, so we can't get down the civil path of stopping publication, but, and we're going to get to take his money, but that's not going to actually make him worse off really than he was. He'll, he'll have speaking fees to make up for it. Let's prosecute him. And so let's just note here the National Security Division update. Henry Freeze was a DIA analyst, a defense intelligence agency analyst, who was living with uh, his girlfriend, who was a CNBC reporter, and he was doing searches and getting access to classified information about foreign weapon systems, which is very much the sort of thing DIA collects and analyzes. And he was passing it to his, his roommate slash girlfriend. She was publishing it. He was also sharing it with another reporter. He was trying to advance uh, the, the girlfriend's career, uh, apparently. So he just got a 30-month sentence for leaking classified information. And it does help us circle back to this other possibility. What if DOJ played real hardball, and tomorrow, after losing this TRO, they said, never mind, we're, we'll take the constructive trust. But we, we know the horse is out of the barn. Time to impose a cost. John Bolden's going to be made a, a lesson out of it. Could they indict him? Isn't the answer yes? Should we, should we pull up the text and do a – do a textual no, I don't think we, I, don't, I mean, I don't think we need to. The, the relevant provision is 793D, right? Because Bolton falls into the category of people who were authorized to have the information ab initio. Right. Um, I just think that, I mean, so I think folks might be listening to this and saying, that's crazy, right? <laughs> nothing's um, too crazy these days. At least, at least Bobby on the ground that nothing he's actually writing in the book is classified. But here's the problem. Um, courts have consistently rejected in improper classification defense in Espionage Act cases, right? And so, you know, now it's not like there are dozens of these. I think there are two, right? But one is a circuit level decision from I think the Ninth Circuit in 1978, a case called Boyce, um, where the courts have said, no, you cannot defend against an Espionage Act prosecution by collaterally attacking whether the information was properly classified in the first place. So, you know, I, I just think- let me, let me draw a distinction here between yeah. A defense that says that the information which was classified shouldn't have been versus information that someone says that sentence pertains that that's close enough to count as the properly classified information. So right. But I, I think the Bolton scenario, I think, involves maybe a little bit of both. There's going to be some stuff that has definitely been classified but shouldn't be. But I also think there's a lot of interpretation that, hey, this chapter has this segment and that really kind of relates to this zone of classified information. So he you might say, like, I don't know, maybe it doesn't. He apparently writes in the book that there are passages in the book where to satisfy pre-publication review, he simply removed quotation marks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, I, I read that he says in the epilogue, like, by the way, if you just imagine quotation marks, there you go. So um, I, just, I, mean, like, I, I, I don't mean to make light of this. Like, I, I think there are real problems. I've been writing for a long time about the problems with the Espionage Act. But, you know, Bolton has um, 
not is not exactly clean hands here, right? Let me let me highlight because I think that 793D, there's there's a mens rea element here that's really interesting to apply to this particular scenario. So it's as you say, it's whoever lawfully had possession of da 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 national defense information. Uh and has reason to believe that that information can be used to the injury of the United States or the advantage of a foreign nation, da 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 goes on to share it. Um, is it. Is it plausible to say that there's anything in this book that Bolton reasonably believes is injurious to the United States? I think that's a little bit of a stretch. What about to the advantage of a foreign nation? Is there, is there not a vagueness problem if you apply that by here by arguing that Look, this shows what a bunch of clowns we are and how terrible the Trump administration is and how venal it is. Um, I think there's a good argument of like, what's news? This is detail, not news. Like everybody already knows all of that. We just didn't know these particular examples. It's not obvious to me that um, the statute clearly enough applies here, you could argue. So I guess I don't, I don't think it should apply here. But I just, I, you know, if they really wanted to flex their muscles, I think they could try it. And I think, and I think it would be a much yeah. harder case for Bolton than we might want it to be. We'll close it out by asking, what do you think the odds are that they actually try the indictment out? I, I think, I think Zero. they won't. Zero. But, 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 but Bobby, not because they couldn't. Right. And which highlights your recurring theme that we should be scared of how broad the Espionage Act is. Hey, where's my dead horse? Let me beat it a little. <laughs> All right. So we did our DOJ roundup. Let's, uh, let's move uh, across uh, town to the DACA. Supreme Court. It's, DACA, uh, excuse me? <laughs> Are you, can you duck explain it to us? Um, <laughs> the title? Do, do, you, you, got, you, got, you got the DACA, excuse me, right? That's, that's pitch perfect. Well, and DACA, explain it. And DACA, explain it. That's right. Um, can you doc us? This, this podcast, this podcast is full of doc explanations. Doc explanations. I don't know. All right. So make a long story. DACA deferred action for childhood arrivals. Um, Obama era immigration program after Congress, um, after the so-called dream act was fill, wasn't able to clear a filibuster in the Senate. Um, Obama tries to implement it through uh, executive order. Um, and there are two different prongs to the DACA program. One is affirmative work benefits for childhood arrivals, that is to say, Bobby, for undocumented immigrants who came to the United States before they turned 18 um, and who have no blemishes on their record since. Um, the first part of the program was uh, benefits. The second part was what's called forbearance, uh, a promise from the government that it would not deport or remove individuals solely by dint of their undocumented, like they'd have to do something affirmative and not just be someone who is in the right. country out of status. Um, the Trump administration famously purports to rescind DACA in, I think, September of 2017, um, principally on the ground that the Trump administration believed DACA itself was unlawful and that, therefore, um, the justification for rescission was its illegality. Um, then the lawsuits start challenging the rescission. Um, the rescission basically gets frozen while these lawsuits are going on. Um, the Supreme Court... Uh, after sitting on these cases for a long time, eventually grants three separate petitions for certiorari before judgment, before the circuits could even rule on the legality of the rescission of DACA. Um, court heard argument November 12th, right before Hernandez. I, was, I had a good seat. Um, and we got the decision yesterday. That's why, you, that's why you kind of had a sense of where this was going. You read yeah. the room? Yeah. And, Were you and in the room where it happened? I was, in the, I was in the room where it happened. And I will just say, I, I walked out of court that day saying DACA was going to, 
go the way it went five to four and that Hernandez was going to go the way it went five to four. So I should play the slots. Um, So to make a long story short, um, the chief justice in his majority opinion holds that the rescission of DACA violated the APA. um, And the principal point that I think to to sort of drive, crystallize exactly what the problem was, um, read at its best, the government's justification for rescission um, dealt only with one half of the program, that is to say the benefits, right? And that, you know, the court did not hold that the benefits part of DACA was lawful or not, right? They left that, on, but they said whether or not it is, the government had no justification for rescinding forbearance. So that, in, so the, in the legal hook for that is the Administrative Procedure Act and the requirement that certain agency actions, not all, but certain ones, um, that there must be reason justification. And, and since there was no justification at all as to the forbearance. It was okay. therefore arbitrary and capricious. That's really. So let me ask the, the two places where I think the critics and the dissents gain the most purchase. And, and really, I, I, I need help understanding why these aren't right. First, there's this threshold question that takes the position that there should be the same, if, if that is indeed the requirement, if this was the sort of action that requires a reason justification, is that not also true for the original determination uh, that under the Obama administration that there should be a DACA program to begin with, mm-hmm. since uh, in theory, creating that forbearance policy and retracting it ought to be of the same ilk. And if so, was there, was the process provided the first time and it's just missing now. Is it as simple as that? Like, yeah, it's good for the goose, good for the gander. But the Obama folks explained what they're doing. The Trump folks did not explain what they were doing. That's so I think, I, think, I think there are two different answers to that. The first is, um, one, what you just said may well be the right answer, right? That there was a, that, that the, the original promulgation of the policy wasn't arbitrary and capricious, but the rescission was. Right. They, cer- right? They, right. they certainly explained it. Right. But... The, 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 I think the more crass explanation is two wrongs don't make a right, right? And so, you know, if the Obama administration did not dot the I's and cross the T's, the right thing to do um, is, to rec- you know, is to either get a court to strike it down, right, or to rescind it the right way. And, you know, three of the justices, uh, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, um, would have held the docket itself was unlawful. But, you know, I think it's pretty relevant that Justice Kavanaugh did not reach that question in his dissent and that the majority sort of sidesteps that question. That issue, Bobby, is now going to be front and center in yeah. Texas's lawsuit, um, right? Because Texas um, has a lawsuit pending before Judge Hainan in Brownsville, not about the rescission of DACA, but about DACA itself. And so, you know, it's possible, right. it's possible that the Chief Justice's opinion has given Texas some new fodder to attack DACA itself. Right. Right. Um, right. although, I, although I bet I think you're right that that is a problem that almost certainly if, if that test applies as to the original policy, I, I haven't looked, but I'm reasonably confident there'll be a pretty fulsome statement of justifications. But more importantly, everything's kind of now moot pending the election, right? So well, this is the, I mean I think this is the big question, right? So so if nothing at all happens right now, right? The really interesting person to watch is your friend and mine, Judge John Bates in DC, because um, Bates had what's called the NAACP case. There are so many DACA cases. Um, and in the NAACP case, um, Bates issued basically a nationwide vacateur of the rescission rule. 
the effect of which was to restore DACA to its pre-rescission status quo. Um, he then promptly stayed his decision pending the government's appeal, right? Um, once that stay is lifted or dissolves, um, which I think some folks argued happened yesterday, and I disagree with all of them, it didn't. Um, but once Bates lifts that stay, if, if DHS has not acted in the interim, then at least at that moment, we're back to the pre-rescission status quo, Bobby, which, which doesn't just mean continued status for people in the program already. It means new people can apply. New people, right. Now, now, all this brings me to the second. So you've given me a couple of reasons not to be too concerned about the parallelism issue, which, which played a role in some of the dissents. What about this other thing that I think, if I recall correctly, the Kavanaugh dissent really focused on, and it did have some appeal to me. It felt, if I understood it right, a linchpin of the majority's analysis, the chief's analysis of why there was no reason justification given was it all depended on sidelining Secretary Nielsen's subsequent statement that was a much thicker account than the wafer-thin original count. Now, I could be wrong, but I think the Nielsen account, if it had counted, would have supplied and would have passed muster. So it was critical and necessary to the decision that it didn't count. And Kavanaugh basically says, as I remember it, um, you know, wait, why wouldn't you count this? The rule about not allowing for post hoc rationalizations has to do with what lawyers may come up with when defending the litigation itself. But when a subsequent Secretary of Homeland Security um, reaffirms and expands upon yeah. uh, the rationale, why shouldn't that count? And isn't it awfully formalistic to say like, well, but she didn't really say she was doing something new. I, I will say, I, I thought that was a pretty persuasive argument. All right, if so I, if I say that as someone who thinks, by the way, let me be clear. DACA is the right policy. Congress, it's shameful that Congress hasn't enacted it by statute. They should yeah. do it today. But that doesn't mean Kavanaugh's wrong. So he's certainly right on the part that like it's shameful that Congress hasn't done anything. Um, mm -hmm. Here's the problem. And I think the problem, and, and, and this, is the, this is why I was a little surprised to hear this from Justice Kavanaugh. Um, the, whole, the, the whole modern conservative objection to administrative law is, um, is couched in terms of lack of sufficient democratic accountability, right? That you have all of these unelected, faceless bureaucrats um, making decisions that affect our daily lives. Um, to me, the best argument against taking into account the later, after the fact, Nielsen memo, which by the way, even if you accept it, Bobby, I don't think it follows, there are still questions about the Nielsen memo. It may not be good memo. enough. But let's okay. assume it is, right? For the sake of argument. Um, um, you're the public, right? I think it's very different to have the following two things happen. Thing one, right? We're doing this program and here's why. And then six months later, oh, here's some additional reasons why, right? Versus thing two, we're doing this program and here's why six months later. All right, so we were wrong about why we could do this program six months ago. Here's the real reason why we're doing it. Like, I mean, why, why does it have to be wrong before? I, I guess I'm not sure that because, I think- Because the here's the problem, right? The problem is that why didn't the administration, why is the Duke memo so bad, right? Why didn't the administration initially just own? And, and this is, I think, the point that is so like right beneath the surface in this case. The principal reason why the administration didn't do this the right way from the get-go, Bobby, is because they wanted to not be accountable, right? They wanted to be able to say, don't blame us for getting rid of DACA, right? Our hands were tied. We had to do it. The courts made us. Um, versus the later on Nielsen memo was like, oh, and also we don't want to do it as a matter of policy. And so, 
if you're, I guess if, my if, problem is, but it was still, it was the stated policy of the new Secretary of Homeland Security. It wasn't like it was a secret deal or wasn't knowable. I just have a hard time accepting if we stipulate that Nielsen's explanation would have been good enough if yeah. it was the first explanation, that it can't count at all later on when the legality of the program's being- so I, I'm not saying it can't count at all. I'm saying it shouldn't count in these circumstances. Like what I think Nielsen should have done is she should have said, I have reviewed the Duke memorandum, right? And I have decided that our initial justifications were insufficient, right? And that in fact, the re that I have, I, I am reaffirming her decision to rescind DACA, but I'm doing it for, oh for, for different reasons. Because here's why, right? It is a very different statement publicly that you're rescinding DACA because the courts are making you, right? Which was basically the gist and tenor of the Duke memo versus we're rescinding DACA. You know, this thing we've already done, we're going to keep doing it, but also here's some additional reasons why we're doing it. Right. As opposed to coming out on day one and saying, we don't like DACA, whether it's legal or not, we are getting rid of it and we are going to own the cost of it. And there's a reason why at the oral argument, Solicitor General Francisco went out of his way to say, we own it. Right. Because he's trying to make the point that now we own it. Right. And my I, problem I guess, is, but they didn't own it initially. So I think you're right. That it'd be much better to have that kind of clarity. But I think there's a danger here that it becomes almost like, well, we didn't see quite the right phrasing. And it just feels like we're reading things into the statutory requirement that are, might be. But it's, not about, probably, it's not about phrasing. It's about, it's about we, we hid our policy objection to this program behind a dubious at best and incomplete that, that legal justification. The test that she had to say those things and to criticize the predecessor approach. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying that the, the, to me, a post hoc sort of um, supplementing of the record, right, to be adequate has to at least be sufficient that, uh, you know, the, the objective person on the street would understand that the government had fundamentally shifted its justification for what it was doing. Right. Why does it have to be a fundamental change? Why can't it just be supplemental and further? So that, to simplify it, uh, stage one, you have, the, you have the initial statement that it needs to get to 100% and it goes to like 10%. It hardly says anything. It's never going to be good enough as an explanation on its own. Stage two, a different official takes the same job, looks at that and says, well, that's ridiculous. That's not going to pass muster. Let me reaffirm this policy and offer a 100% or at least close enough to 100% uh, explanation without really commenting one way or the other on the inadequate one before. Listen, I, but the 100% is still there. It seems like that. I think, you and I, I think you and I are actually not very far apart on this. I think the problem is the Nielsen memo, right? The Nielsen memo is not exactly robust um, in its articulation of both what the new considerations are and why those are the new considerations. And so I think this case would have been very different from the get-go, Bobby, if one of two things were true. If the government had all along owned the rescission, in which case this case would never have gotten that far, or if the Nielsen memo had been much more um, full-throated, right, in its articulation of the policy reasons for rescinding DACA and its explanation that, you know, therefore, even if DACA itself is lawful, right? We are committed to its rescission because I think the pro it, it's, it's, it's the exact distinction of this case that troubles me where the government's initial justification is illegality, right? As which at least gives rise to the appearance that they're trying to not take responsibility for ending a popular program. And then they shift midstream to, oh, never mind, we are taking responsibility, but no one notices. Yeah. Well, I, uh, so we, our, our distinction is clear. Um, yeah. What's funny is it's, uh, 
as several people pointed out, it's amazing that in an area where I think everyone agrees that as long as they find a sufficiently clear way to explain what they're doing, this is a policy that can clearly be revoked. It can't be, that, can't be that Obama, as a matter of executive enforcement discretion, decided to stop enforcement and no one can undo that. Well, you, say, you, say, totally, you, say every, you say everybody believes that, but there are a bunch of Republican politicians tweeting about, you know, tweeting the opposite. Right, well, yeah, I take, I, I don't follow everybody. Um, the, uh, the, the Bobby. Oh, I'm trying to say is- I haven't read the book. What's that? I haven't read the book. I haven't, I haven't seen the tweet. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm literally not sure what you're referring to. So uh, anyways, I'm not even sure where I was going with this. I think I was trying to say, I don't know what I was trying to say. You were trying to say something about um, if, how tomorrow the administration, if it wanted to do it the right way, it could receive. Right, no, okay. So what I wanted to make the point about was, it is remarkable that it's clear that they have the authority to do this, that this is in fact a policy discretionary action and they still can't make it stick. And it reflects the fact combination of, as you've been emphasizing, a desire not to own too much of the political heat for doing that because the policy, in fact, the DACA policy, in fact, is sweepingly popular, including with Republicans. Um, and secondly, it has to do with just sort of the, the sheer incompetence and bullheadedness of how they've, they've kind of conducted things. But the reality is they, they do have this power, and yet they found a way not to be able to exercise it, which is I mean, really it's, remarkable. Bobby, it's, it's a rerun of the sense of citizenship case, right? I mean, right down to the Supreme Court opinion. Like the, you know, the Chief Justice's opinion last year in the sense of citizenship case spends a whole chunk of time explaining why this, it's, it would be perfectly appropriate to ask a citizenship question on the census if you actually had, you know, gotten there the right way. Right. And so, you know, the I tweeted this. This tweet turned into my most my most ridiculously viral tweet ever. Um, it's not that Chief Justice Roberts is a closet progressive. He's not. It's that the Trump administration is really bad at administrative law. And I wanted to sort of qualify that like by really bad. I mean, a very interesting combination of incompetent and malevolent. Right. Because, you know, some of it's just incompetence, but some of it is deliberate efforts to avoid the transparency and accountability forcing functions of administrative law to obscure the fact that they're trying to do things for either illegitimate Bobby or at the very least politically unpopular reasons. So uh, there's DACA and I think it's fair to say that next steps won't be conclusively finalized prior to the election and the yeah. inauguration. So yeah. that'll have more, that'll have much more to do with what ultimately happens. Um, than the fallout litigation, unless Trump gets reelected, in which case, then it all, of course, continues to matter. For I mean, right. I mean, if, if he gets reelected, does anything matter? <laughs> Everything will matter. Um, we have a crazy echo story from the National Guard in DC. Eric Schmidt, the New York Times reported that um, the, the main thrust of the story was that there were, in fact, National Guard aircraft that were uh, using cameras to monitor certain things for certain purposes and it was all sort of unclear and it raised the possibility which is what the article was sort of flagging it was at least the possibility that this was intention with dod's representation very clear representation the other day that there was no defense support to civil authorities in the nature of surveillance and and that was a big deal because people really had been wondering are these planes actually monitoring Maybe, maybe doing some cell site simulation. Are they monitoring communication somehow under the heading of defense support to civil authorities, which is a really big civ mill issue. And DOD was really clear and unequivocal. 
note, it's not just that nothing illegal was going on or inappropriate, but that no one even asked us to do that sort of thing. Then we get the story that there were National Guard aircraft that were filming or they were, they were viewing. Um, on that particular issue, I think maybe that's a little tempest in the teapot because it, it sounds like from the nuances in the article that what probably was going on there was monitoring crowd movements relating to where National Guard personnel were deployed and hence simply engaging in what I would conceive of as uh, very conventional force protection uh, uh, ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, to understand whether is there a big crowd of people perhaps coming around the corner towards your personnel. That's not trying to surveil communications or doing other things that get sensitive uh, in the same way from a Fourth Amendment and civil relations perspective, if that's what was going on. But what was really wild was the realization amidst the story that Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania had said, uh, no Pennsylvania National Guard participated. Right, we, right, we talked about how some governors had, had turned down the request under 502. Right. But the article says that, what was it just like, there were seven personnel from the Pennsylvania National Guard uh, in D.C. doing something. So option one, uh, there's a mistake in the story somewhere and that, that, that wasn't the deal. Uh, option two, that those seven somehow, some way were not Pennsylvania National Guard. Option three, uh, the governor uh, misspoke or was poorly informed or somehow or other forgot what he'd allowed. Option four, uh, the governor was right about what he intended and somehow, some way, someone gave the command below his authority in the state system to send those people there anyways. Or, or maybe somehow the, the federal, the Pentagon somehow managed to, to pull them in. Um, it should not be possible unless there's something really wild and different about Pennsylvania state law on this matter. Am I right that it should not be possible for state National Guard that have not been federalized or not in any way in federal service to be deployed without the approval of their governor? Yes. Yeah, that's it. There you go. So we got we to know what was happening there. And hopefully somebody's going to tear into that and find out. I would think Governor Wolf, for one, would want to tear into that and find out what was going on. And I, just, I, I continue to think that... Um, there's a lot of focus, rightly, Bobby, on, on the centralization of ordinary law enforcement authority in response to the D.C. protests, right? I think there really ought to be at least as much attention on the National Guard piece of the story because, you know, I continue not to be, I am not convinced that I am correct about 502, but if I'm not, it's for reasons that are not remotely obvious, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Congress investigating this, Congress having hearings, Congress demanding answers from the relevant, you know, officials, I think is, is a necessary step at this point. Interestingly, in this case, you don't need Congress to act. The Pennsylvania governor's office ought to be very focused on this. Also, I can imagine the answer will turn out to be that there's some sort of uh, interstate compact sharing National Guard broker deal where these nope. seven in some fashion were adjunct to or seconded to some other except, uh, states. Except that that's EMAC and the only and EMAC and the federal government has no ability to, in, to invoke EMAC. It's the mayor of the, it's the mayor of the city. So yeah. unless unless Bowser requested these seven people or could plausibly be said to have requested these seven people. Right. That EMAC seems unlikely. EMAC isn't an answer either. Yeah. So watch this space. We'll come back to that one if you ever learn more. True. Um, uh, lightning round, China and India had themselves a little mini international <laughs> armed conflict. Unbelievable. What, if, what if they threw a war and nobody came? So uh, there was a, what is often described as a border skirmish, but it was relatively high intensity. And I noted today that China was releasing 10 
uh, Indian personnel. Those would be POWs in an international armed conflict because this was clearly an exchange of hostilities with belligerent intent uh, involving the armed forces of two different nations. Uh, so we have a little window of conventional international armed conflict, which we don't get a lot of. Uh, and it's terrifying when it happens. This is terrifying. These are nuclear powers. It does not seem likely that it's escalating, but you know, watch this space. Um, can you imagine a time in our careers when this story would have gotten so little attention? Uh, I can't imagine anything anymore. Oh, fair enough. Um, lastly, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2020 is now the law of the land. Uh, and it's funny because it's basically simultaneous with one of the more extraordinary Bolton claims, uh, the claim that uh, Trump told President Xi that he applauded and approved the, uh, the concentration camp policy, though not using those words, uh, but the policy of suppression of, of the Uyghurs. And um, so then right on cue, Congress passes this bill, the administration decides to sign it. Um, who knows what the sort of thought process there was. Well, let's talk about what it does. It's, it is the case already that we have, as this show constantly uh, reminds people, IEPA, that is a pre-existing delegation framework in which the president need only invoke national emergency and then can tap into the ability to have his administration name foreign persons or entities and sanction them in ways that block their, their U.S. reachable assets, that they have immigration consequences. Um, what this statute does is kind of interesting, kind of cool. It, it doesn't just skip that altogether and simply name and impose sanctions using the foreign commerce power of Congress. It's all about IEPA, but it nonetheless tries to mostly force the president's hand to use the IEPA system. So it's not a separate standalone sanction system. It's a mandate. It compels the president to sanction. But more specifically, the way it does this is it compels the president within 180 days, so six months from this Wednesday, to submit to Congress a report that names foreign persons that the president determines are, quote, responsible for torture, CID treatment or punishment, that's cruel and human degrading treatment or punishment, prolonged detention without charge or trial, disappearances or other, quote, flagrant denial of the right to liberty, a life, liberty, or security of the person. In Zhangjiang, if I know I'm mispronouncing that, and I apologize for that, in, in the Uyghurs province in the West, against Uyghurs, ethnic Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, or other persons there. Um, and then having obliged him to name those persons that he decides fit in that category. And by the way, clearly he could just decide that no one fits in that category. But whoever he names, it is automatic under the statute that they must be sanctioned under IEPA. So the naming is discretionary. There's an, there's an articulable standard. He can choose to apply it or not as, as he wishes to particular persons. Once he decides to name someone in the congressional report, though, then the IEPA sanctions, asset blocking and immigration and visa consequences, apply automatically, subject to exceptions for, and this is fascinating, persons involved in basically Title 50 intelligence activities. So maybe there's somebody we don't want this to fall upon because they're helpful. Um, and the president, in any event, has the ability to desanction people with 15 days notice to Congress for reasons of national security interest or mistake, et cetera. Um, I think one interesting question to, to ask is, um, on its face, does the standard that should lead to naming and hence to sanctioning 
does it not apply to President Xi himself and to all sorts of others? Right. Right. Um, and, and on this model, what should happen, but obviously won't, the president should name all sorts of the senior most Chinese government officials, name them, and then the sanctions are automatic. And then he has to, if he thinks it's a disaster for the United States to actually take those uh, inflammatory steps, then he'd have to give 15 days notice to Congress of intent uh, to waive those sanctions or take them off the list under national security grounds, which would actually be plausible in terms of diplomatic relations, et cetera. Uh, but of course, he'll never name Xi to begin with. And that proves the point that this tool sounds extremely compulsory. The reality is the administration can choose who they want to hit with this. And if they don't really want to hit a lot of sensitive people, then they won't hit a lot of sensitive people. They can name some face-saving number of Chinese officials who are not in any way likely to come to the United States or to have assets in the United States, but they can, it, it can sound tough and it can sound compulsory without really having much effect. And maybe that's why the president was perfectly happy to sign it. Maybe, maybe he just wanted to be able to say, look, I'm, look, I'm, I'm tough on China. I'm tough on China. I'm, I'm toughest. I'm the toughest there's ever been on okay. China. So, so speaking of the toughest there's ever been, so um, someone just apparently asked Kayleigh McEnany at a White House press conference, um, you know, how she explains all of the really sort of critical statements coming out about, you know, by, by the president's own former appointees, right? And this is also um, something Mick Mulvaney said. Do you, do you see Mulvaney's quote? Right. If, so Mulvaney said, if, if, if there's one thing that the president's not great at, it's he doesn't always hire, you know, he doesn't always hire well. Right. <laughs> this is Mulvaney who says this. So hey, he, well, that, that's fair. Well, yeah, but um, the one thing part is not fair, but the not hiring. Well, look in the mirror, Mick Mulvaney. Um, but so here's what I want. I want to see your facial expression when I, when I tell you the question, when I tell you what you said. My face, so. so the question was, why does the president keep hiring people that are, quote, dumb as a rock, overrated, way over their heads, wacko and incompetent, unquote. And here's what McEnany says. He likes the model of having a team of rivals, just like we saw in the Lincoln administration. <laughs> oh, boy, there's your Lincoln quote on Juneteenth. So Josh Chaffetz um, uh, uh, tweeted back, ah, yes, who can forget when Seward called Lincoln a moron or when Cameron penned an open letter accusing him of not even pretending to try to unite the country or when Chase wrote a tell-all accusing him of selling out the national interest for his own game. <laughs> There's like your alternate history. Um, All right. I just oh I can't, I can't anymore. Oh, my goodness. All right. Uh, can we, having exhausted ourselves, can we turn to frivolity and end on a lighter note? Yeah, no, it's not, I'm not going to be that frivolous because I, I think this is all pretty unfrivolous. All right, so if, you, if you're not a friend of the sports ball and you've been, in, indeed, if you've been enjoying the lack of uh, sports ballity, uh, bad news, the frivolity is going to return to sports now, at least in the sense of talking about whether we'll all be returning to sports. And if, so if you're signing off on that note, thanks for listening. Indeed. Let's talk NBA first. Um, bubble. Okay, so I, I've... I've understood from your comments so far that you're deeply skeptical that the bubble model, the green zone model is ever going to work. Um, let me ask you though, just a sort of a merits of the plan part away from the public health piece. What do you think about this idea of having this sort of like truncated sort of warm up finale season or, or most importantly, what about like telling all these other, the, the bad teams right, to go home. home? What, why not let everyone, you know, what do you make of that? So I think there's a lot of pressure from NBA players on the weaker teams 
who just didn't want to have to go through this isolation that they're going to have to go through, right? Who didn't want to have to sort of deal with all of this to play what to them are effectively meaningless games. All right. So no spoiler games, no, no trouble. That, that makes it so then, so, but they don't cut it off at, all right, turns out you either made the playoffs or not. Already. Well, that's, that's, so like that, that's the thing I don't like, right? So I would have just said, you know what? We understand that a couple of you guys were vying for the playoffs, but you know, stuff happens and it just turns out the season game. ended that day. And right. No. So, so if I were the NBA, I would have gone straight to the playoffs. Like maybe, you know, maybe have an eight, if you really want to be generous, like have nine teams from each conference, right. And have like, right, a why, best why, of, why not just like make it all the playoffs. Right. And have like a best of three play in series, which they're effectively doing anyway. Right. I mean, if the ninth place team finishes what within four games of the eighth right. place team, then they, then they play like a play in a mini play in series before the right, right, right. playoffs start. So as a, you know what a, you know what a homer I am for the San Antonio Spurs, my beloved Spurs. I do. Uh, Twenty two straight years, playoff glory. Um, some years more than others, but twenty two. You know the gold standard for making it. Um, they're outside the bubble now, but this gives them a chance, and it enables them. With I've still got a chance. They got a chance. So, uh, so you're saying there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance, which is about the right spirit for this, because of course. Not, not necessarily being able to count on this coming. They went ahead and, and LaMarcus Aldridge, uh, who's really everything to them, he, he had shoulder surgery, so he's out. Uh, the Spurs are a little shorthanded here, and yeah, I'm but, not I mean, terribly optimistic they're going to grab that ninth spot. I, but, Bobby, I'm not, I'm not sure there's going to be playoffs. So, you know, they might, their streak might be preserved, right? Because Do you think this whole thing is just going to crater once they get there and it turns out people still keep getting COVID? Yes. Because I think, I mean, I think the, if you look at the statistics, right, I mean, I think, what, 22 states right now are reporting um, higher new cases per day than they had previously. Um, in Texas, as of, like, what, four days ago, hospitalization, not just new cases, hospitalizations for COVID were up 85% since Memorial Day. I mean, I just, you know, Mike Pence wrote this whole fancy op-ed about how there's no, there's no second wave. And my response is, that's right. This is still the first freaking wave. No, that's true. I, I didn't see that op-ed, but um, to say that there's not a problem currently is, is I, on its face doesn't that doesn't face past the the laugh test. And the question, um, but the, why, the question is, what's going to work? Why can't the bubble work? Um, I think because two things. One, the sheer volume of people involved means that at some point, some folks you know, who are infected, right? You're not, you're not isolating all of the security guards. You're not isolating all of the food, cert- like, you know, those folks, it's not gonna be like Biodome 3, right? Where there's literally no interaction with the outside world for the duration of this thing. And there are gonna be at least some folks who of necessity are gonna be transitory. And so that of course, dramatically increases the risk of infection. Now right? we're gonna, I, I recognize that we have a, hotter environment than say uh, many other countries in the world but it's pretty hot in the uk too and english premier league's doing this and they're a little ahead of us on the path so i think i think the theory that like the the line cannot be held sufficiently to enable the teams to play yeah we're actually going to get some ground truth on that over the next two weeks that may be right that may be right but i just but the other thing is also (sighs) the premier league right if two players on a side get infected and have to be sent home or whatever, sent to the sent to the dungeon, right? Two week timeout. Um, the game would go on, right? Like the the side would go on. You know, the the even if it's a star, right? There are plenty of other players. Um, if LeBron gets it, right? 
or if, you know, if, if, if some high, I mean, the NBA, we're talking about fewer people. And so with, yeah, they have less, they have less, uh, they have less fallback. That's a fair point. So major league baseball is different in that respect. Why won't this work for major league baseball? Um, it won't work for major league because baseball they because can't, they just can't agree on the money. Because they hate each other, right? Like, I mean, that's, you know, I'm going to say it is really distasteful that these billionaires and millionaires can't figure out when they're 10 games apart in the number of games we played. I got an idea. Divide that by two, agree in between, and get your show on the road before people even more turn away from baseball. This is what happened in 94. Um, I know. You know, Tony, Tony Kornheiser, my, as you know, the only show I listen to religiously is, is part of the interruption. And, and Kornheiser's been saying for weeks that, you know, when you have two sides like this who are never going to trust each other, but who are actually relatively close in terms, the obvious solution is to have them submit to binding arbitration. Yeah. Um, right. Because they're clearly close Right. And they're clearly not going to trust any deal that the other one proposes. And so therefore you need a neutral intermediary. It just seems like such an obvious case for dividing half exactly yeah. their separated positions here and be done with it before people decide that baseball sucks. But if I had told you on June 19th that the Mets would have no losses, I would have taken that. <laughs> they are undefeated. That. This is true. And you know, the Spurs haven't lost in months. Neither of the Knicks. <laughs> clearly we have gone through into a quantum uh, singularity of something. Although, until, although as, as only the Mets can, despite not having lost a game all season, they've lost at least one of their stars to season-ending surgery. <laughs> Spurs too. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, one last thing, just a, a quick note. Um, yesterday was Sydney's birthday. Hey, happy birthday, Sid. So Sydney uh, is now – to celebrate? She's, uh, we're potty training her. <laughs> you know what? That's a, a gift to you guys eventually. Eventually, but she's actually, I, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, you've done this three times. It's remarkable how different children react differently to potty training. Like with Maddie, it was a chore because she didn't want a potty. You know, she wouldn't sort of voluntarily go sit on a potty. We started potty training Sydney on Monday. Um, when she has to pee, she just stands up and says, pee pee and walks over to the potty and sits down and pees. I just laugh and imagine like your kids like 15 years from now digging up this audio and like embarrassing each other with it. Oh, Sorry, this, audio, this audio is not nothing compared to the, the tweets. Karen and I, you know, when we are, when our kids are old enough to find our Twitter accounts, we are in deep trouble. It's so funny. It's, you know, do you think there's a, is it a generational divide that falls right between us? Cause I feel like, I feel like all the sort of the, the more like early seventies parents, uh, we just don't, there's not much Facebook or maybe it's just my, like who I, who I pay attention to and myself not really being on Facebook much, but uh, I just don't see as much stuff, but I feel like all younger parents, there's, there's like a much more chronicled lives of the personal lives, which is really fun for me. I can keep up with everybody. But I, I just never I, do it myself. I, so I think for, we were always into like doing stuff on Facebook about the kids. I think for both me and Karen um, talking about them on Twitter has really ticked up since the pandemic. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> that's true. And also, um, you guys are further from relatives, and so right. the efficiency of, of sharing pictures and all that for them right. different than like for Heather and I, where the you know family's all nearby. But also, I think there's a lot of like common um, catharsis going on right now from like parents being able to like you know share their parenting um, travail, their, their pandemic parenting uh, uh, travails, you know, with each other. That's a good point, actually. It makes sense. Because um, I think I, I what, what is this? This is day one hundred and ninety-three for us. What's that? It depends, on, it depends on what you count from. We kind of count from the beginning of spring break. I think we're on ninety-three since spring break started. Um, 
No, right. spring break started March 13th. Today, today is today is 17. Today, wait, I can't do math. Today is what's well, the 19th? Three months later, so somewhere last around. Last time was 100. So today's 106. It's a lot. It's a lot. Whatever it is. Um, All right. Wow. 15, 15. Yeah, 15 weeks ago today. Oh, I think we're uh, closer to the beginning than we are to the end. Oh, I don't think that's. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Which is going to make <laughs> things. Quite interesting. Oh, I, I will note that tonight, if you like Robert Earl Keen and Lyle Lovett, they are going to do an online performance tonight at, I assume this must be Central Time, 8 o'clock on, this is public service for some people to know this is happening. I'm definitely going to watch this. Um, on the Eagle, what is this? I'm a little fuzzy on what the source is, but look it up. That's enough information to track it down. Don't miss former college roommates, Lyle Lovett and Robert Earl Keane. All right. I won't. I'm greeted with silence because this is not your favorite music, I guess. Not so much. But, you know, it, listen, I'll take any Bolton who isn't Michael, who isn't, who isn't John. So I'll take Michael Bolton today. Michael Bolton. <laughs> you should watch The Office in honor of that. Fair enough. Uh, I mean, not The Office. I'm sorry. Office Space. I was going to say, the, not all right. Office Space. Your name is Michael Bolton? <laughs> hey, have you watched Space Force yet? I, I, so I started it. Is any good? I think it's really inconsistent. I think there are some really, really funny moments and a lot of just like, mm. Yeah. All right. What else? What, should, what, what series should I be picking up now? Wait, wait, but did, you, did you see that there's now apparently some kind of like trademark or cop? The, there's now like a trademark dispute between the creators of Space Force, the series, and the Pentagon? I, would, I just assume somehow or other they kind of worked on that or there'd be some IP type answer to explain apparently, it. Apparently not. So. Hey, prior restraint time. <laughs> there we go. All right. I, I, yeah, this is, I can't anymore. All right. You are at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. I don't know about you, Bobby. I'm tired. Um, you're going to have to find new t- – this is like how uh, s- some languages like Finnish, there's lots of words for snow. Yeah. Right? You need new uh, w- verbiage for degrees of tiredness <laughs> because really you're do. experiencing so many layers of it, as are we all. Indeed. Um, so say we all. So say we all. On that note, I'm going to sleep. Adios.